going to be moving into another aspect of the life of Job today. And the book of Job is just an amazing book. Uh, it, it's a piece of poetry, one of the most incredible pieces of poetry in the ancient world. Uh, it's Hebrew poetry, and so we cannot translate that. I wish we could. I wish Rodney could come up with a way of translating Hebrew poetry into English so that it, it sounds like poetry. But, but we can't do that. And so when you look at the book, you're like, this doesn't sound like poetry. Yeah, it's not in Hebrew. If we had it in Hebrew, it would sound like poetry. It then also tackles one of the most difficult questions of life, uh, which is why sometimes does God's people suffer? What, what is it about this suffering that we have to go through? And in the book of Job, it explores the questions that surround that. Today we're going to be looking at, uh, at least, well, all the way through, Job's friends. Now, at the beginning of the book, Job has three friends. And, and we're introduced to them uh, in chapter 2. They're, they're named Eliphaz, uh, Bildad, and Zophar. And we don't know anything about them. We don't know who they are. We don't know, you know, uh, Eliphaz, the Temanite. We don't know who a Temanite was. The Shuhite, Zophar, the Namathite. I mean, we don't know any of those people. Now, the only thing I do know is that, that Zophar is, is quite famous. I don't know if y'all know that, if you realize, you ever thought about that. Blake, Blake's giving me a stunned look like he doesn't have a clue. Zophar is where we get the famous quote, Blake, and you've used it many times. So far, so good. Okay? You would have thought being from Alabama, you had heard that many times. Man, a lie. Come on. But uh, these are three of Job's friends, and they, they come to offer him comfort in the midst of just incredible heartache. Uh, and, and we're going to be looking at some interactions between uh, these friends and Job as well as another friend who shows up just kind of out of the blue. And we'll look at him at, here in just a few minutes. Uh, you get over into Job chapter 3 and everything in Job's world has just come crashing down. I mean, Job has lost all of his wealth. He has lost his children. Uh, he's now lost his health. And, and his three friends have showed up, and, and they're shocked. They don't even recognize him for seven days. They sit in the dust and the ashes with him, just trying to take it all in, as he is just sitting there, just absolutely suffering beyond belief. And, and in chapter 3, he, he, he finally speaks. Job speaks after seven days. And, of course, one of the things that's going on in the book is that say, the Satan, the the kind of prosecuting attorney, heavenly being, uh, is trying to get Job to curse God because he, he doesn't think Job's a man of integrity. But Job doesn't curse God. He curses the day he was born. He goes on and he talks about the fact that he wished he had not been born, that he had been stillborn, that he had died at birth. He wished that had happened. And then at the end of that chapter, he says, God, what's going on? I don't understand what's taking place here. Uh, he ends the chapter with words that I think all of us can, can feel. What I feared has come upon me. 
What I dreaded has happened to me. I suspect you can think back in your life. That phone call. That knock at the door. That that message from the doctor. And all at once, what you have always feared is true. And you're like, wow. And Job goes on to say, I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, but only turmoil. I mean, Job is really struggling. And all he wants to know is why. Why is this happening? And basically the rest of the book is is a battle in trying to answer this question. Battle between Job and his friends. Battle between Job and himself. Battle between Job and God. Why? And I've asked the question. You probably have asked the question. If some of you teenagers haven't, you will eventually. I mean, it's going to come upon all of us. Why has this taken place? Now, at the very heart of what's fixing to happen through at least the first half of the lesson tonight is this principle here. This is from Deuteronomy 28, and this is a biblical principle, okay? I mean, this is from God. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Verse 15, however, if you do not obey the Lord your God, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. And so you have this principle that comes straight out of the book of Deuteronomy, is repeated in the book of Proverbs, which basically say if you live a wise, God-fearing life, you'll be blessed. If you live a foolish, God-cursing life, you'll be cursed. Okay? That's the principle. But here's the thing you've got to understand. It's a principle. It's not an absolute law. This is not something that is always true which is the problem for Job and for his three friends. I mean, Job gets sucked into it because his three friends believe that it's absolute. And so what follows is this huge debate and argument over why is Job suffering. And of course, if you look at this, if you are experiencing curses, then it's because you have not obeyed the Lord. Well, they're thinking that has to be true of Job. But Job keeps saying, but but it's not. And so from Job 4 through Job 27, there are these three rounds of heated, and I mean heated debate, between Job and his friends. As they finally speak up, and the way it works is that you'll have Eliphaz will speak, and then Bildad will speak, and then Zophar will speak. And after each one of them speaks, Job responds. And the way it works is real simple. You've done something wrong. You've sinned. You may not realize it. You may not know it. But you've sinned somehow. And God has punished you, therefore, because of that. And Job's response every time is, no, I haven't. It's not that I'm not a sinner. But every time I've ever sinned, I have responded in repentance. I have offered sacrifice. I have tried to honor God. There is no sin I'm trying to cover or hide. And, boy, they just keep going at each other. And it gets uglier and uglier, and and I was going to say it a third time, but I don't think it'll come out of my mouth. I mean, it it, it just gets sad. And the whole time, Job, I mean, he answers his friends, and then he looks at God and goes, what's going on? And, and, And what happens to Job is that Job gets sucked into that very principle. Job begins to believe what his friend says, which is, if you sin then you suffer because that's the 
the system of justice God's put in place. But Job keeps going, but I haven't sinned, and I'm suffering, and so the problem must be with God. I mean, Job's trying to figure it out himself. And you see Job on this roller coaster of emotions, the same thing that all of us have experienced in difficult times. And so let's look at what happens. Job 4 begins with Eliphaz. Eliphaz the Temanite replied, If someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? But who can keep from speaking? In other words, I hesitate to say, Well, no, I don't. I'm going to say it anyway. You ever had somebody do you that way? I mean, it's almost as if they're asking permission to speak, but then they go, but, but I've got to say it. That's the way Eliphaz begins. And what's fascinating is that Eliphaz, right off the bat, comes up with this principle of reward and punishment. Okay? Watch what he says. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble are those who reap it. In other words, do evil, you get cursed. And Eliphaz says, in my life, that's always been true. I've never seen the innocent perish, the upright destroyed. And here you are suffering and you're perishing. Therefore, you must not be innocent and you must not be upright. He goes on and as he gets near the end of his speech, he says, blessed is the one whom God corrects. Job, God's trying to fix something in you. Something's wrong. You've sinned somehow. So do not despise the discipline of the Almighty. Don't do it. Job replies, and I took this out of Eugene Peterson's The Message. Rod's right. Boy, these translations sometimes really help us. But Job gets down to the end of chapter 6 as he's responding to Eliphaz, and he says, look me in the eyes. Do you think I'd lie to your face? Think it over. No double talk. Think carefully. Guys, my integrity is on the line. And then he says this. Can you detect anything false in what I say? Don't you trust me to discern good from evil? I don't know if you've ever had that conversation with a loved one of where things are going so chaotic that you don't know if you can trust anybody. I remember my mother was going through some really difficult times after a devastating car wreck. And me and my brother and sister, I'm the oldest in the family now, and we were trying to figure out what was best for mom. And, and I remember sitting there talking with mom one day, and, and I said, Mom, you're going to have to trust us. And my mother blurted out, I can't trust anyone. And I remember sitting there hearing my own mother say that and just, you know, thinking, wow. She, she is under so much anxiety, so much pressure that she's almost to the point she doesn't believe she can trust her own children. And, and I think Job goes through wave after wave of that feeling that, guys, listen, you're going to have to trust me. You're not trusting me. And you've got to trust me. I can discern from good and evil. 
And then the second guy speaks up. And I'm only going to go look at these two because once you get here, it really gets ugly. But this is Bildad, Job's friend, okay? And, and Bildad the Shuite replies, How long will you say such things, Job? Your words are a blustering wind. Does God pervert justice? Again, remember the principle. Do good, God blesses. Do evil, God curses. Job appears to be cursed. Therefore, he must have done something evil. But Job knows in his heart he hasn't. And so he's thinking God somehow has messed up his system. And so here's Bildad, and his words are are right. Does God pervert justice? No. Does the Almighty pervert what is right? No. But watch what he does next. What he does next is unconscionable. And, And I think all of us have probably done it. Have you ever been in an argument and you've always kept in the background a what I call a trump card? You know, you've got that one example, that one story, that one situation that, boy, you know is going to devastate them. You can just, you can just throw it in there at just the right time and boom, you got them. And, and so, you know, oftentimes that's what people will do. They'll say that trump card and then at right the right time they play it and they hope for devastating effects. And it does have sometimes devastating effects. Look at Bill Dance. When your children sinned against him, he gave them over to the penalty of their sin. Job, when your seven sons, when your three daughters, when they got killed in that storm, do you think they got killed because they were innocent? Oh, no. God gave them over to the sins they were committing. Your children were sinners, and they died for it. Can you imagine being Job? who was so careful that every time his kids had a party, he would offer a sacrifice for each one of them, just in case one of them thought something bad in their minds. And here's Bill Dad looking at him and said, Can I tell you the reason your kids died is because they must have done something evil? And you see where these conversations go. I mean, words, they're like fire. Beneficial, but also incredibly dangerous. You turn over to Proverbs, and Proverbs says the tongue has the power of life and death. We all know that. I mean, have you ever said something that you just wished you could have immediately got it back? I mean, it comes out of your mouth, you blurt it out, and as soon as it left your lips, you're like, that's not going to be good. Brother Jim's wife was coming through the fellowship line. Long, long time ago, I was in my 20s. I was a youth minister. And they're coming through the fellowship line. She's coming through the fellowship line. She's got two plates. And as she comes through the fellowship line, now, now get this, church potluck. You know, church potlucks, plate, food, you know what I mean? Except this time, Brother Jim's wife's coming through, and it's like a little spoonful of every, I mean, it's not even, the plate's not even covered. Just a little spoonful here, a little spoonful there. And I see her and I go, that's all you're getting for, for y'all? And she said, yeah, me and Brother Jim, we're, we're on a diet. And then those words just popped out. I wished I could have stopped them. I looked at the plate and I said, Brother Jim doesn't need to be on a diet. 
foot was in mouth and I couldn't get it out. I knew if I said anything to try to fix it, it was just going to make it worse. And, you know, sometimes words just really do damage. Fortunately, Brother Jim's wife was gracious and kind. James, half-brother of the Lord, he, he would write over in his book, the tongue is a small part of the body, but boy, it makes great boast. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire. And, and, and in many ways, that's what's going on in the book of Job. Because Job's all about words. The words of his friends, the words, the words of Job, the words of God. And, and the question is, who's going to be truthful and who's going to be honest about what they say? Job begins to reflect on just how he's feeling. And what you see in Job's comments, again, is this roller coaster. Okay, I want you to picture a roller coaster. Because one moment, Job's going to say something really good. The next moment, boy, he's just, going to, he's just going to open up and be honest with us. Look at what he says. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks and they're poison. I mean, you've got these poison arrows that are being shot at him. And he says, my spirit is drinking it in. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Oh, that I might have my request that God would grant what I hope for. That God would be willing to crush me. To let loose his hand, cut off my life. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain, that I had not denied the words of the Holy One. If God would just go ahead and kill me, at least I haven't cursed him. And so you're just feeling that anguish as he's hurting so much. If I've sinned, what have I done to you? You who see everything we do, why have you made me your target? Have I become a burden to you? Why do you not pardon my offenses and forgive my sins? I mean, here's a guy who's lived his whole life as a life of integrity, blamelessness. God said it himself. And yet here in the midst of this suffering is Job going, God, have you not forgiven me? Have you not done away with those things which were offensive to you? If you haven't, why? God, what, what's going on? And yet he comes right back and says, but, but I'll just tell you, even if he kills me, even if he slays me, I'll still hope in him. Roller coaster. Up here, down here. Up here, down here. You've been on it. I know you have. And so what do you do in times like this? Job did this. He said, only grant me these two things. God, only grant me these two things, God, and then I, I will not hide from you. Number one, he says, withdraw your hand far from me. Stop frightening me with your terrors. And then he says this, which is fascinating. Then summon me and I will answer. Or let me speak and you reply to me. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. He says, God, all I'm asking is that you, you, you call me into your court. Call me in and, and let me at least defend myself. If, if you've got offenses, show me. I, I'll repent of them. But, but let me at least defend myself. Would you at least grant that to me? Because he's blocked my way so I cannot pass. He's shrouded my path in darkness 
He stripped me of my honor. He's removed the crown from my head. He tears me down on every side till I'm gone. He uproots my life, my hope like a tree. His anger burns against me. He counts me among his enemies. His troops advance in force. They build a siege ramp against me in the camp around my tent. Boy, you just feel the anguish. I mean, one moment, okay, God, I trust you. And the next one, God, have I become your enemy? And so what we see taking place as you get over to chapter 31 is Job putting up his defense. And it's actually an incredible chapter. You want a chapter on how to live blameless before God, this beautiful chapter to go to. And, and so Job begins, if I've walked with falsehood or my foot is hurried after deceit, God, if I've done that. But his point is, I haven't. If my heart has been enticed by a woman, or if I've lurked at my neighbor's door, if, if I've looked for someone to have an affair with, then, but God, I haven't. If I've denied justice to any of my servants, whether men or women, God, if I've just not treated them right, but you know, I haven't. If I've denied the desires of the poor, let the eyes of the widow grow weary. I mean, if I'm not taking care of those in need, I've never turned my back on anybody, God. He says, I've not done that. And if I put my trust in gold or said to pure gold, you're my security. But God, you know that I haven't done that. My security's always been you. And if I've rejoiced at my enemy's misfortune or gloated over the trouble that came to him, then yes, God, punish me. But you know I haven't. And so here's what he says. Oh, that I had someone to hear me. I signed... Again, that image of him in front of God. God is the judge. He's making his defense. I sign now my defense. Let the Almighty answer me. Let my accuser put his indictment in writing. And then verse 31, chapter 31, 40 says, the words of Job are ended. Which is kind of like me saying, now my last point, and going on for 20 minutes more. Okay? I mean, Job doesn't stop here, but at least the book says, there's time for something else. And what follows is what's so fascinating about this book. Is this young person, I don't know how old he is, I don't know if he's a teenager, I don't know if he's in his 20s, but he's a young person, and his name is Elihu. And Elihu just shows up, we don't know where he came from, we don't know anything about him, but he just shows up and begins speaking. But Elihu, son of Barakel, the buzzite of the family of Ram, we don't know anything about that. I mean, yeah, we've got all this information, we just don't know anything about it. He became very angry with Job. He's been there listening. Listening to Job's three friends. He's, he's been listening to Job. And he gets very angry with Job. And I want you to notice why. For justifying himself rather than God. It's not that what Job's been saying is, is wrong. Job is blameless. But, but his focus has been on himself. And, and Elihu says, Job... You've been too focused on you and not focused enough on the Almighty. And in verse 3, he was also angry, and, and here's the justification, he was also angry with the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. They had said, you're guilty, we just can't prove it. And Elihu says that wasn't fair either. And then Elihu says maybe there's a different way of looking at this. 
which is what's so amazing about where and how the book ends. He says, I'm young in years, and you're old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. Uh, I love this, you're young, you're old. Don't we debate that all the time? I mean, uh, you know, I'm officially on Medicare. As I tell everybody, I'm bona fide now. The other day we were praying, me and June, and June said, please be with the older members up there at church. And I said, you know we're part of the older members, right? And, and she's like, well, I mean older. And I said, well, I'm getting older every day. And, and so, but here is he. He said, I'm young, you're old. That is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. In other words, he says, usually wisdom comes with age. But he says, that's not the only way wisdom comes. Notice what he says. I thought age should speak. Advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in a person the breath of the Almighty that gives them understanding. It is not only the old who are wise, not only the aged who understand what is right. He says, listen, God gives wisdom to anybody who asks it, even to young people. And so he says, would you dare to listen to a young person? You've said in my hearing, I heard the very words, I'm pure, I've done no wrong, I'm clean, free from sin. Yet God has found fault with me. Notice the language there. God has found fault with me. He considers me his enemy. He fastens my feet in shackles. He keeps close watch on all my paths. Now, is that true? That's the, that's the question Elihu is asking. Elihu did not believe that the principle of blessing and cursing was the only principle at play in Job's life. That's what I love about this. Elihu is saying, is it possible that the world is a little bit more complicated than that? Is it possible that what God is doing is not what we as human beings would think God is doing? Is that a possibility? And the answer is, of course it is. He says, but I can tell you in this, you're not right. This idea that God is somehow mistreating you is not right. God's greater than any mortal. Why do you complain to him that he responds to no one's words? He says, you keep crying out, God, answer me. And Elihu says, you don't think he does? And, and so he begins to talk a little bit about how God answers. For God does speak. Now one way, now another, though no one perceives it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls on people as they slumber in their beds. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had a dream where you woke up and you're like, okay, that was more than a dream. I tell people all the time, sometimes I preach on Saturday, or I go to bed on Saturday night not knowing what I'm going to preach on Sunday morning. I've studied all week, but it's still just not coming together. Only in the middle of the night, all at once I wake up and I'm, I go, that's it. That's how I'm going to preach the sermon. Now you can say, well, that's just all your study, finally your brain's putting, you know, you know God's not involved. If you want to believe that, that's great. But I just happen to believe that sometimes what Elihu was saying is true. And notice what he says about that. He may speak in their ears and terrify them with warnings. In other words, sometimes God will say, don't go that direction. He tries to turn them from wrongdoing, you need to quit doing that. Or to keep them from pride, you're not as smart as you think you are. To preserve them from the pit, you keep going that direction and you're going to die. 
or their lives from perishing by the sword. You pick another fight like that, and you're not going to like the results. What's that what you saying? He's saying life is more complicated, Job, than what you believe. Your, your friends, all of y'all have got stuck on this blessing-cursing principle, and life's more complicated than that. And God still speaks. But you've got to tune into Him. You've got to hear Him. Today, we're better off than they were. Whenever this book is set, I don't know the time period in which it's set, but we have Scripture now. God has spoken plainly to us. We have it on our phones. We have it on our iPads, on our computers. We have it in book version, right? God's spoken to us. And Paul told Timothy, you know what? Because God has spoken, and every word of Scripture is God-breathed, then it can teach us, it can rebuke us, it can correct us, it can train us. I mean, we have the words of God. We don't have to wonder what He's saying. We have it. But it's not just in Scripture. I love the fact that God speaks to us in nature. One of the things the psalmist says, if you're listening, heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour speech out. Listen to it. I mean, the heavens, the stars, the sun, the moon. I mean, nature itself, day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. Are we listening? I don't know if I'll have enough to eat. You ever notice the birds? They don't sow, they don't reap, but God feeds them. Well, I may not have enough clothes to wear. You ever noticed the lilies of the field? I think of the buttercups. Anybody notice the buttercups coming in this morning? They're all over the place. Beautiful, beautiful. Everything's brown except all at once here comes up these buttercups. All saying spring's on the way. I mean, God speaks to us all the time if we're listening. And then people, Elihu's an example of it of wisdom given to a young man. And God said, would you say something to Job and his three friends that they need to listen instead of talking all the time? Remember your leaders, the Hebrew writer said, who spoke words of God to you. I think back to those who have influenced my life. You've got the same people in your school, teachers, professors at college, elders in the church, Bible school teachers. Even when we were kids, those teachers in our Sunday school classes who taught us so much about God. God's still speaking. The question is very simple. Are you listening? Am I listening? That was the question of Job. Are you listening? Next week we're going to hear when he finally does listen and what he learns. In the meantime, what's God been trying to say to you? He's been speaking, I promise you. He hasn't been silent. You may think God hasn't spoke. He, he is speaking. And he's calling us to himself. He's calling us to do what Job did all the way through. And that is, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I hope you'll put your hope in him. If you haven't, why don't you do it right now? Let's together we stand and sing.